Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 47 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. The Kentucky Humanities Kentucky Book Festival will officially get underway on Sunday, November 10th with the Kids Kickoff at Arts Place, 161 North Mill Street in downtown Lexington. The kickoff will feature creative activities for kids of all ages. A number of authors will be on hand. You'll get to see the process of creating a children's book with author Amanda Driscoll, participate in a story time, and a lot more. The Newport Aquarium's Wave on Wheels program will be on hand, and there will be learning activities uh, will be offered throughout the afternoon. That's 1 to 4 at Arts Place on Mill Street in downtown Lexington. Uh, The kickoff begins a week-long series of programs leading up to the Kentucky Book Fair on Saturday, November 16th, where over 200 authors will greet uh, the public and sign books. You can also learn from a number of stage presentations, speakers, and conversations throughout the day. One of those participants in both the kickoff and the book fair on Saturday the 16th is Marvin Bartlett. Bartlett has been a co-anchor for the Fox 56 10 o'clock news in Lexington since it started on January the 2nd, 1995. Since then, Marvin has won three regional Emmys for news writing and reporting, and in his career, he's won more than a dozen reporting awards from the Associated Press. He's a native of Grafton, West Virginia, an 83 graduate of Marshall University, where he obtained a bachelor's degree in broadcast journalism. In 1985, he completed requirements for a master's degree in journalism at Ohio University, and he worked in various uh, stations, uh, was uh, Eastern Kentucky Bureau Chief for a station in Charleston, West Virginia. Uh, Then he moved to Lexington, married with a couple of children, and the reason he's here is to talk about something that a lot of you in the listening audience might already know about, and that's Jarrett's Joy Cart. when he was uh, in 2002, he, he wrote uh, about uh, Jarrett Manier, um, a, a young cancer patient uh, at the time that Marvin met him. Uh, and you were working uh, to do that, weren't you, Marvin? Uh, and now an updated version of The Boy Who Delivered Joy was published this year. And Marvin and I are going to share some, some reading to begin with. Uh, the foreword I'm going to read and then Marvin is going to read the first uh, uh, words of the first chapter that he wrote uh, some time ago. So the foreword was written by Jarrett Manier mm-hmm. uh, in uh, February of 2002 when he was 12 years old. And the book that Marvin has put together uh, begins like this in the foreword. When Marvin first asked me if he could write a book about the joy card in me, I thought it was pretty crazy. I couldn't see why anyone would want to read about a kid who battled cancer most of his life. That doesn't make for very fun reading. But then I thought of all the things I've learned and done because of my cancer. I decided to let Marvin write this book because I want other people facing tough situations to know that you can get through almost anything if you keep a positive attitude and remember helping others is the best way to help yourself. There aren't enough words to tell my family, friends, the medical staff, uh, and the Jarrett's Joy Cart volunteers and supporters how much I appreciate all they've done. This story would be very different if it weren't all for you. 
That's Jarrett Manier, February 2002. And uh, Marvin reads from chapter one, which is titled The Videotape. Thank you, Bill. It was crunch time in the television newsroom, that time of day when you're really up against the deadline. It's the hour when almost all reporters are back from the field, scrambling to type last-second information into their scripts, get videotape edited, and phone calls returned. It's a crazy, hectic atmosphere that true journalists love and outside observers find disturbing. As I made my way through the mayhem to my desk, I wondered if anyone would notice that my eyes were watery. Surely, as big as it felt, that lump in my throat would be visible. I had just viewed a few minutes of videotape of a little boy who was fighting some type of cancer, and it affected me. The tape had been shot earlier in the day by a videographer who went alone to the University of Kentucky Children's Hospital. The planned news conference wasn't deemed important enough to require a reporter. It was basketball season in Kentucky, March Madness, a time when the UK Wildcats were expected to bulldoze their way through all competition and make it to the Final Four. It seemed half our staff was on the road with the team and the other half was scraping up local sidebar stories. If you own a business with Wildcat in the name, it may get you a shot on the nightly news in March. If you skip work to watch an afternoon basketball game at a local bar, and thousands do, you might have a camera stuck in your face. The mayor of Lexington declares every day UK is playing a tournament game as Blue White Day, meaning you could be chastised by friends and neighbors if you forgot to put on the team colors before you headed out of the house that morning. It's said that basketball is a religion in Kentucky. Our newscasts can sometimes look like a worship service. That's why the shooter had been instructed to spray the news conference. In newsroom lingo, that means get in and out quickly. We wouldn't have much room for the story in the basketball-heavy show that night. Little did any of us know that the boy who was the focus of the news conference that day would soon touch us all so deeply. And that was Jared. Yeah. So take us back uh, to that day in the newsroom and uh, the video that you saw and your first introduction to, to Jared. Yeah, well, I, when I saw the videotape, I just thought, we're not doing this story justice. They want me to put together some 45-second uh, piece to throw in the news real quickly here, and it'll be on and gone. And, and I just, you know, from, from years of watching stories, what kind of stories affect people, what really would tug at their hearts, what could really be a great story if you had the time to tell it. And, and I, I just immediately went out into the newsroom and told folks that I said, this is a, this is a great. You got to hear this kid. He was more eloquent than any child I'd ever heard. Really, you, you know, as you interview children, you usually get yes and no answers or shoulder shrugs. And he was speaking in big sentences uh, with you know twenty four dollar words. And uh, I just knew there was a lot more to it. And uh, I just said, I'll I'll be the one to go back and do this story. Um, let's give it a month and see if his little idea catches on. His idea of giving out toys to the to the. Uh, to the children at the hospital. And so that's what I did. I contacted his family and said, 30 days into this, can I come and, and see how things are going? And then, so I didn't meet him personally until about 30 days after that. So the, uh, tell me about what you learned uh, about the joy cart and, and the, the toy giveaway. Was this his idea from being in the hospital and, and battling cancer? It was his idea when he, he was in hospitals uh, most of his life. Very seldom did he get to go to school or spend much time with people his own age. He was around adults and doctors and in hospitals from the age of two when he was donate, diagnosed with Ewing sarcoma. That's the type of cancer he had. So during one of those hospital stays, he was in Seattle in the children's hospital out there. And the ladies auxiliary came around and gave out some toys. 
and that planted a seed, he just remembered that and how special that was and whatever little trinket they gave him that day he had kept with him. And during one particularly lonely time, I think, at, at the UK hospital, he just noticed how few kids were getting visitors and how long the day seemed for people. And he remembered how it cheered him when they came around and gave him a toy. And of course, every kid can relate to a toy. Did you know that he was a special kid from the first time that you met him? You got that feeling, uh, yeah. From the tape, I got that feeling. And then when I met him, I guess what was neat about it was the way he went into the rooms and visited the other patients. He really gave them pep talks. And that's what impressed me. It really wasn't about the toys he was giving away. It was about the way he was interacting with kids who uh, looked pretty sad and, and didn't have any visitors and weren't talking too much. But they saw someone their own age who'd been through all of this, and they were telling him things that they probably wouldn't tell other people. And that, that's when I realized this, this is pretty special. He's making a connection here that no adult could make. So at the time that you met him, he was probably around nine was or not, so? Yes, nine. Where do you think, or did you ever talk to his parents or anyone else, uh, he became so articulate and well-spoken and, uh, and was able to communicate so well and, and write so well? Yeah, well, a lot of that credit does go to his parents. His mother was a former teacher, and, and she, when he was not able to be in school, made sure he kept up with his lessons and was always challenged with reading and learning. But I do think it's, it's the fact that he was around adults all the time. He was around doctors and, and you know, very learned people, and he learned to talk to them on their level. And it really, I think it was that he had more adult friends than he had child friends. Well, take us forward from the time that uh, you met him, uh, that 30 days after you first saw the tape, and, and how this story unfolds. Because um, you, you've, um, you wrote this first some years ago. Uh, tell us the difference uh, between the, the book that I have in my hands that we read from and, and what you first did. Right. Okay. Well, I had followed the story then for several months after that original story. And, and the, the joy card just was one of those little ideas that, that uh, became a big deal. People just wanted to help it, and they sent in uh, donations, and, and uh, it captured the attention of producers of the Rosie O'Donnell Show. And once he got some national publicity, Toys R Us donated truckloads full of toys. And, wow. and just things started rolling into Lexington, and, and he was getting national awards. And, and all of these things were individual stories that we did on the newscast, but they weren't all tied together to tell the big story. And I just realized, you know— uh, to tell this story correctly, it needs to be a book. You can't do it in two-minute news segments. So uh, I did that, but the difference is, and I spent a lot of time with Jarrett in, in, in writing that first book. I would sit with him at the clinic while he was receiving chemotherapy and just let him tell me things. This uh, is before you had children. Yes, yes, before I was married even. Mm -hmm. So, uh, But Jarrett was still alive when this first version of the book came out. And, and I'm glad of that. He got to see it come out. He got to be at some book signings and, and see some of the you know, attention that it was receiving. But after his death, a lot more things happened, uh, and, and uh, including one of the biggest things, the development of Dance Blue here at UK, which is a huge student-led philanthropic event. And it's, it's kind of like Paul Harvey said, you know, you need to know the rest of the story. So the new material talks about the sadness of Jared's death, you know, how, how his life ended, but then about the efforts of people to keep his legacy alive. And that's what I wanted people to know, that, you know, this didn't die with him. This, this uh, c continues now. Uh, they just celebrated the 20th anniversary of Jared's joy card, and it's going strong. So Dance Blue was uh, originally 
begun because of, of Jarrett? Yes, uh, and kind of how that happened was Jarrett was wise enough uh, that he knew at the end he didn't have many days left, and he kind of made a, a list of final wishes. And in that list, he told his mom and dad, here's things I want you to do. And one of the things was to make this clinic better because the UK Pediatric Oncology Clinic wasn't a very pleasant place at that time. It was old, outdated, gloomy. The toys that were available to kids were broken in a lot of cases. And he just said, do something to make this clinic better. As a way of really dealing with her grief, his mother looked at that list just weeks after his death and said, well, this is my marching order. I need to do something to make the clinic better. The only way to make it better is really to replace it. And so she started trying to think of ways that they could raise a lot of money to do that. Meeting with some people at UK, they, they brainstormed. And eventually they latched onto this idea of a dance marathon based on a giant marathon that's done at Penn State. And so it became Dance Blue. So the roots of that are in Jarrett's final wish list. When Dance Blue is held each year, is Jarrett given some recognition of being an originator of this? He is. There's, of course, it's a 24-hour dance marathon, and there is a memory hour. And yes, he does. He is always mentioned and remembered in that memory hour. Mm-hmm. What? Um, tell me about the Rosie O'Donnell show and how all of that happened. Thank and you. there's a picture in here of. Uh, <laughs> Of Jared and, and Rosie and, and others too, but but tell us that story. Okay. Well, the first story that I did with with Jared, the thirty days after when he was rolling the card and I followed him room from room, uh, was played out on our news that night. And it just so happened that one of the members of our floor crew had an ex girlfriend who was a producer for the Rosie O'Donnell show. <laughs> Part of her job was to book guests, and he said, "Can I send this to her? They love kids like this." And I said, "Well, sure. I don't see why not. What could it hurt?" Didn't really expect anything to come out of it. Within a week of them receiving that tape, they were on the phone wanting more tape and on the phone with Jarrett's family trying to book him to come to New York. So, again, I think it was maybe within two weeks of when my story aired that he was on the show. Of course, that's national publicity, and that's when Toys R Us made its donation and when they started getting emails and, and letters and donations, and, and, then, and a local business and donated a warehouse for them to keep the toys in. That really got the ball rolling. Rosie said that he was one of her favorite childhood guests. She had him back four more times. Really? And uh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And then there was also a segment. Uh, he didn't actually meet Oprah Winfrey, but there was a segment on Oprah Winfrey's show about him as well. So all of that just just really made him a celebrity, not just locally, but uh, nationwide. Does the giving for in his name continue with, with the big companies or corporations? Somewhat, and uh, yeah, then, and his parents would want you to know that the Jarrett's Joy Cart nonprofit is not just uh, about collecting toys. They have collected a lot of money to upgrade equipment at the Dance Blue. It's now called the Dance Blue Clinic. Hmm. Uh, they've bought, they've purchased a lot of educational resources there to help families and siblings of people with cancer. And mm-hmm. so it's not just about those toys that they give away every Tuesday night. His parents uh, must too be uh, special people. Yeah, this is a, I mean, this is a major endeavor. It's, it's a lot to, to make this happen every week, and uh, they've never let it lapse. I think there was maybe one week after Jarrett's death, the cart didn't run, but the next week his mom was lining up volunteers and making sure that it would roll. And, uh, yeah, it, their energy amazes me. There's a, um, a piece uh, very uh, poignantly written, very well written, I think, um, about his mother returning to 
the area of the hospital where he was in the last room that he was in before he passed away. And uh, so tell us, give us a little background on the the toad or yeah. the frog <laughs> right. uh, and, 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 and what she saw there and, and how that is a significant part of, of the story. Yeah, this is something that kind of weaves its way through the book. But uh, one particular toy or item that, that Jarrett latched onto was a, was a stuffed frog. And it was given to him by his grandmother. And uh, it was based on an incident that happened at his grandmother's house one day when she woke up and uh, somehow a tree frog had fallen down the chimney into the house. She jumped up scared. Uh, some books fell on the frog. The frog died. Uh, he teased her about that forever. Granny's a frog killer. And it was just a little thing they had, a little back and forth. So when either, either of them went somewhere and they saw a souvenir frog, they would gift each other a frog. And it was a thing that, uh, like I say, they kind of carried on throughout their lives. Well, I'll get to the end. So the, uh, the clinic was, was being renovated at the end. And, and uh, this is about four or five years ago after Jared's death. The clinic was being renovated. And it's a beautiful, bright place now over there at the Kentucky Children's Hospital when you go in the children's ward because each section is themed and there's a space theme, an underwater theme, those kind of things. And there's one area that's rainforest themed. And each room has a uh, icon on the door and, and murals on the wall and those kind of things. Jennifer was, Jennifer is, is his mother. She was over there on a joy cart night and they weren't quite ready to open this new wing yet, but the barriers had been taken down and curiosity got the best of her and she wanted to see how the construction was coming along. So she goes into that section of the hospital uh, and into that wing where Jarrett died. And she went past the room where he died, and she said, I just can't. I can't go in there. Uh, but, you know, curiosity gets the best of you, and she did stick her, stick her head in there. And the icon in that room was a frog. <laughs> she said no one at the hospital knew about that relationship. She'd never told anyone that story. And this kind of came at a time when she was thinking, is this worth it? Is this worth all this work? And she really saw that as a sign, like, here's a frog. This is the biggest connection I have to Jarrett, and it's in the room where he died. And, and she took a lot of inspiration from that. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that there are still many, many children who are uh, sick and hospitalized at Children's Hospital. What is the, uh, do, do, do you know what the progress of that uh, cancer that he had, uh, the, the, uh, not only the diagnosis, but the, the treatment of that? Are they making some, some progress? Yeah, I know, I know at least one person who had the same kind of cancer as Jarrett and uh, seems to be totally in remission and, and doing mm, so much better. Wonderful. But it was, uh, at the time, he was one of the youngest people in the nation to have been diagnosed with that type of cancer, and they didn't... Uh, really have any research or anything to go on with how a child would react and respond to it. Did he have a transplant? He had a bone marrow transplant. Yes. yes. Okay. Uh, and his sister was the donor. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. That must have been, I mean, that's that's a horrendous procedure to go through uh, yes. for anybody. But for a little, uh, just keep thinking about uh, how small he was and how young he was. Um, died at 12, is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. What, what's the um, what's the lasting impression that actually uh, he died at thirteen at thirteen right mm -hmm. what's the lasting impression that that he really made on you how, how did it change your life well at about the same time I was writing this book my mother was going through cancer and she has since passed 
but I think everybody knows someone or close to someone or many people actually who are, who are dealing with cancer. And just looking at the way Jared handled it has been inspirational to anybody who's going through it or knows someone going through it. His message, and, and this is wise from a young person to say, but his message was, you have to make every day special because you don't know how many days you're going to have. And he really lived that out. And yeah, he had bad days in, in private. I'm sure he felt depressed at times and like, how can I go on? But you never, no one ever saw that in public. He always was the face of joy. That's the, the name of the book, the name of his cart. And it's true. And I, I've had a lot of people tell me, you know, I've never felt sorry for myself again after reading about that little boy. The, um, the story of uh, his, his passing uh, or the last time that he was at home is, um, is heart-wrenching. Um, it is. But he was a trooper up to the very end, wasn't he? He was, yeah. T- tell us about that incident that, that you write about, about the camera and taking that picture of his. Okay. He, uh, it, it was pretty evident to him and his nursing staff and, and his parents that the, the end was near in a matter of hours, probably. The tumors had grown so large, and his, his body was just shutting down. And uh, some of his favorite nurses actually came to their home and, and said, we'll sit through the night with him. He was that close to, to all of his uh, hospital staffers. And uh, his mom and dad, I'm trying to recall this correctly, his mom and dad came into the room. It was pretty late at night, and uh, he could barely raise his body up off the couch really, but he said, um, let me, uh, let me take a picture of you. And they said, okay. And he lifted the camera up from the, uh, and I think it was one of those little point-and-shoot cameras, not a cell phone camera, but one of those small point-and-shoot kind of cameras. He lifted it from the uh, coffee table there, could barely lift it, really. He was so weak. But uh, he had them get together. He told them to smile. And uh, he took a picture, and he said, there, that's what I needed. Mm-hmm. And they, they just thought those were poignant words that's mm-hmm. what I needed it's like somehow he was planning some kind of a memory for himself and they still see that picture and, and his 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 feet are in the bottom of the picture because he couldn't lift the camera high enough mm-hmm. but that's a treasured photo for mm-hmm. them and you visited him on his last day I did yeah after not at the home but after they took mm-hmm. him to the hospital I, I did I don't I don't know how aware he was that I was there but I just thought I wanted to go by one mm-hmm. more time and let him know and whisper in his ear you know we're, we're thinking about you hang in there and you know, thanks for all you've done. I'm talking to Marvin Bartlett, uh, anchor for a Fox station here in uh, Lexington. I've been uh, uh, in the news business for a long time, and uh, people know him and are aware of him. But they, uh, and a lot of people know about uh, his uh, work with the Joy Card and, and Jarrett uh, Manier. Uh, he'll be at our kids kickoff on November the 10th on Sunday afternoon at Arts Place, and then he'll be at the book fair on the 16th uh, to right. talk with people and and sign uh, your book. Um, it's, um, it's very well done. Um, I thought uh, you, you're, a, you're a journalist or you're a writer, so that, that, uh, <laughs> that comes through. When you see people who come by to, uh, to get a book signed or, or if you meet uh, parents or kids uh, at the kickoff, what, what, what is your message to them? Do, do, you, do you try to continue to, to carry Jarrett in your heart and and what do you want people 
to know that come by and talk with you about him. Yeah, it's just uh, from what he said, it's all about paying it forward. You don't have to do something as grand as the joy cart, but there's always something nice you can do for somebody else. There's some kind of little project or some kind of little thing you can think of to do for other people. And that's, that's what he always said. He said, just volunteer for things, get involved, you know, find what your passion is and then try to help out in any way. It doesn't have to be giving away toys or going to the hospital, but there's some way everybody can help. And that, that really resonates with a lot of kids when you speak to school groups or, or vacation Bible school groups that often collect toys and uh, just everybody, it resonates with them. That, yeah, I can do something. It does, I don't have to be important or famous, but I can make a difference. Whether it's uh, uh, the children's hospital here or any number of other facilities uh, in Kentucky or anywhere, uh, but but you're you're more familiar with uh, with the facilities here. Is there still a great need for for volunteers and for people to interact with the kids and and to be with them other than just their close family members? Is there do do they ask that be done uh, these days? Uh, what what can people do? Um, you know, I'm not really sure if you can just go into the hospital as a stranger and visit any child, but uh, you can provide things that will help them break their boredom, and that's what the joy cart's kind of about. You can write cards and letters and send things that they can hang in their room. Uh, there are, again, mostly I know about Jared's joy cart, and they do look for volunteers year-round to help them run that cart, and they do a holiday store in December, which is kind of a reverse joy cart where the, the children who are patients actually get to go pick out items to give to their family as gifts. Oh, how nice. And, and they, they need a lot of people to help yeah. with that, just to help wrap the gifts, to help take the kids through the store and pick out appropriate things. And, of course, if anyone who donates things, that's always mm-hmm. welcome too. But, yeah, I would go to thejoycart.com if that interests you and just look at a lot of volunteer opportunities that are posted there. Yeah, good. And I think we should say at that Sunday event, too, that folks can bring bring a toy that day. Oh. We hope to build them out in the toys Wonderful. that day. Yeah. Yes, we are uh, asking people to do that. Yeah, bring a toy uh, for for the kids, and, uh, yeah, it, it's wonderful. And you're going to be there uh, to uh, to sign the book and uh, talk with people and uh, to tell them about your remembrances. Marvin, I couldn't let you go um, uh, through the podcast without a little bit of uh, journalism and, <laughs> and uh, news talk uh, from... Uh, from one who used to be in it and, and now one who's, uh, you said 24 years. Uh, at, at Fox 56. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. plus uh, your other work uh, in Kentucky and other places too. Um, we've, we've uh, gosh, it sounds like, we know what it sounds like. Uh, uh, <laughs> that we're old. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, two, two guys, uh, that, that you, yeah. but you're still in it. How, how have you seen it change over the years? I think I've seen it change mostly by the emphasis that's on uh, social media now. You know, we used to work on a story and your deadline was 10 o'clock news that night. Now you need to get it out there as soon as you know it almost on Facebook and Twitter and all the other social media outlets or on the station website. And I think that's changed a lot about how we operate. Uh, There is a People don't wait for a newscast. They expect to get their news immediately. They immediately go to their smartphones to look for things when they hear about it. And uh, so I think we're, we're doing a really good job of getting stuff out there faster, but I don't know if it's as thorough as it used to be when it's fast like that. I think it, a story unfolds over hours and hours in the course of the day. You add little additional pieces of information as you learn them, where before you kind of tried to have the whole story before you put it out there. And I'm not so sure and, and not uh, ready to make a judgment on whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, a, it's the reality of being in, in the news business today. 
Um, I don't see it reversing. Do you see any kind of trend that might take us away from there? You know, there as we tape this uh, today, there's a story, a national story about uh, uh, the founder of Twitter deciding not to report uh, some some fake news, mm-hmm. where uh, his competition, uh, Zuckerberg at Facebook, has said. Uh, we're going to put just about anything up, uh, w- whether it's fake or not, and, l- and let people decide. So for two giants who really control uh, the the medium, uh, that's kind of a tough place to be if you're trying to decide whether to go ahead with, with uh, all-out social media or not. I, w- what's your opinion? Yeah, well, I don't see it change, and I, I can't even predict where, where it'll be 10 or 15 years from now, but the way people receive their news it has changed so much and continues to change. And uh, we have more hours of news on TV than we ever had, but fewer viewers. Um, I, I don't know what the answer is, and we all know the problems and the struggles newspapers have, and the traditional ways of receiving news are just not the same. And I, I don't really know if I know what, where it's headed, but I don't see it going back to the way we knew it. Well, I regret that. I, I do too. <laughs> I still, though, what I try to... Um, to tell young people and uh, a class uh, that I teach, uh, a journalism class, is that um, the who, what, where, when, and how, uh, and what, um, and the facts of a story still matter to me, and I hope that that always matters to these young people. Yeah. But boy, they have a hard time deciding sometimes between what's opinion and what's fact. They do. (laughs) <laughs> and, then, and they're so quick to share something they've heard without really considering the source. Yeah. And that's how so much misinformation and fake news gets out there. But they are the future, and, and we're going to uh, let them uh, carry on, uh, uh, hopefully, a, a great tradition of journalism all, all across uh, uh, these parts of uh, the world uh, as well. Uh, so Marvin Bartlett, once again, uh, thanks so much for being here. We uh, uh, we know people will be anxious to uh, to uh, come down and say hello to you, bring a toy, and and uh, uh, look at your book. And um, we just look forward and thank you for, very much for participating in the uh, Kentucky Humanities Kentucky Book Festival. Oh, I can't wait. I'm looking forward to it. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 47 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.